Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth bringing you quality hunting clothing and packs at a price that you deserve. Check them out at HuntworthGear.com. And I'll tell you what, uh, they are giving away, again, I can't say enough about their rain gear. Uh, their rain, they're giving away a set of their rain gear and one of their packs uh, in our Patreon giveaway. And uh, this past weekend that rain gear actually saved me not necessarily from uh the rain but the mosquitoes were so bad it was but they were biting me through my shirt and everything and i, I threw it on um yeah it was <laughs> it was a little hot it, it breathed okay um but it definitely uh staved off the mosquitoes and uh gotta thank the guys uh, a few of the patrons eric from new york and tj came up from ohio and uh tim clark came over from midland they hunted over with tim and and uh, obviously I'm tagged out and got to do a little bit of turkey hunting and got to have them tag along and uh, got into some birds, uh, had some weapons malfunction, miss type scenarios. Um, but we'll have to get into that on another episode. Uh, but that that rain gear, I was really glad that I had it in there um, to be able to uh, keep those mosquitoes off of me. Uh, I'd like I say, I'm I'm very, very uh, happy with it, especially for the price. And, and like I say, you can check that out at HuntworthGear.com. Uh, speaking of Patreons, last episode I blew up Robbie for uh, not bringing his uh, arrows. And uh, this time he brought his arrows with a custom paint face paint job by his uh, little daughter. And he was able to shoot his first bird with a bow. So... Congrats, Robbie. I know you like hearing about yourself uh, on here, and uh, I just thought I'd I'd say congrats again uh, for you on that. This episode, um, real excited. You know, normally this time of year we don't necessarily think about mock scrapes, um, but Troy Pottinger is one of those guys who um, sets up uh, his deer hunts uh, as a trapper, and uh, in the area that he's hunting where deer travel a long ways Um, he's been able to set up these scrapes and uh, it's very interesting he gets into talking about how he sets them up and he sets sets them up and the deer maintain them so it's not something that he's necessarily um, continuing you know there isn't you know there is work but there's not a ton of work uh, into it and he kind of lets the deer do do their thing and uh, he just kind of refreshes them from time to time so um, I think it's a really great episode kind of to piggyback off of the one that we were doing about food plots and habitat management uh, as we're getting out there and doing some some of that stuff uh, on our properties and, and 
checking, getting inventory, watching the velvet grow, using the trail cameras. Um, I think this is a great episode uh, for this time of year and to get back into a little bit of that whitetail mindset. Um, Real quick, we got to give a, a shout out to uh, some of our our sponsors who, um, you know, they give away a ton of stuff through uh, Patreon, and Patreon is uh, crowdfunding for creators. So basically, it helps us do all of these things that we do with the show, and um, you know, the equipment that we're recording on, the pays for all the data, all that type of stuff. Uh, but then we try and give back as much as we can, and um, so the giveaways are just crazy as always uh red lines giving away a full uh single pin adjustable sight uh one of their quivers um i really really enjoy that quiver uh especially for the price um and one of their stabilizers so a full uh setup and you know if you listen to that pod podcast with uh with eric young from Redline, you know he says you know you can be kind of bougie and all your stuff will match you know sight uh, stabilizer uh quiver all that stuff and they're giving away that, but, you know, we as a podcast, we like to give away things that maybe people aren't going to um, buy for themselves and uh, wanted to give away one last year, just couldn't because of COVID and uh, getting together with Skip. Uh, wanted to give away a gearhead, but through our friends at Bowhunter Planet, uh, we got a gearhead 60-pound T24 um, that they uh, they shot for their, through the chrono and all that, and, uh, you know, they're passing it along and we're going to be giving that away to one of the the lucky patreons and then um spartan forge spartan forge if you haven't checked them out i mean they just came out with this update where they've got uav uh data that's just incredible for most uh, of the areas around big cities um so they're working on getting the rest of it but then they've also added a lambda feature where you can overlay uh, a bunch of these different layers as well as um if it does have that uav footage you can go to different times of the year so you can look at historical data and all that's right on their app uh, you can go to spartanforge.ai and uh, check that out there's a 14-day free trial you can use code bowhunter to save 25 percent um you have to do that online because the app you know the app store takes money all of that so uh, if you want to get that discount you got to do that at spartanforge.ai and they give away uh one of their subscriptions so um we thank them for that <laughs> lucky buck you know we did that podcast with uh domain talking about all the different seeds and what they're used for and lucky buck has not only uh an incredible mineral for getting that out now as the fawns are dropping in uh, as we talk about herd health and all of that stuff but they also have perfect perennial a seed blend where it's got you know some of that chicory a lot of that clover and uh, some of that stuff that's going to go back uh every year and uh, they give away your choice of that if you can't use their mineral in your area um, but we've got all of that out and we're getting some of that seed in the ground here, uh, coming up. And then, you know, our, our friends, you know, they're local Michigan guys, zinger fletchings, uh, used them all last year. Uh, if you hate fletching arrows and you want something that will steer your arrow, it's quick, it's easy. Um, zinger fletchings, those guys are great. We're going to be, uh, seeing them up at TAC here in Michigan coming up and, uh, looking forward to that. But, um, one of our other sponsors, we're, we're working, um, trying to get, get one of those, uh, sites. Uh, uncle Frank just got one of those adjustable red dots put on his bow, uh, hoping to give one of those up, 
uh, away later on this year. But uh, I just posted a video up of my daughter shooting one, and it's exactly what I had envisioned. You know, once I got her to actually see the dot, um, you know, you just see that dot and you can shoot. And for kids, you know, in in my opinion, um, it's real difficult to get them to find their anchor, then level their bubble, then look through the peep, then put the sight on the bow. You know, this is kind of drawback, find the find the dot and uh, shoot it. And that's exactly what uh, Uncle Frank's doing. And he just got his uh, set up. He's super excited about that. Um, so big shout out to the guys over at uh, Adjustable Red Dot, Tim and the gang there. But again, uh, that's all the stuff that we're giving away. This always is so long because there's so many people that we work with and um, that are so generous uh, to give away uh, to the people that support us. So you know, I support a bunch of Patreon, you know, on Patreon of a bunch of different guys that I support. Um, you know, I, I believe in uh, supporting people that you want to see win. And uh, we appreciate everybody that does. You can check that out at bowhunterchroniclespodcast.com and click the Patreon link. It's it's in our Instagram. Um, but, you know, if not, just tell somebody about this show. Um, you know, introduce us to somebody. And, and this podcast with Troy Pottinger is going to relate to just about everybody um, because he's doing it where there's not a ton of deer and he's done it in the Midwest and he's showing incredible success. We're going to be testing it out this year. Uh, Super excited about it. Um, But as always, thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. All right, everybody, Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast, sitting here on uh, AM podcast, which is kind of uh, different for us. Normally, it's uh, beers and energy drinks, and now it's uh, coffee and water getting ready to start the day. Um, I'm going to be talking today with Troy Pottinger about some mock scrapes, deer scraping activity, um, and kind of setting up the trap for the deer. So how are you doing this morning, Troy? Good, Adam. Uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, not a problem. I, I think scrapes are one of those things that maybe get misinterpreted or used incorrectly. Um, kind of an anomaly for a lot of people, a mystery, if you will. Um, so, Troy, for, for you, let's go a little bit on, into your background about hunting scrapes and how you decided that that was the way um, that you were going to be able to, to target the deer that you needed to. For sure. Um, So I have an extensive history of hunting. I'm from the Northwest and hunting mountain whitetails, predominantly all public land. Yes. I've had a couple little pieces of private over the years that I've been able to hunt. Um, But my game, my, I guess my playing field, so to speak, is probably the most immense, the probably the largest tracks of public land you could imagine hunting in the lower 48 for whitetails. And uh, couple that with extreme elevation change, uh, dense, dense coniferous forests that run for hundreds of miles. Um, it, it's just insane, basically, meaning it's insane in the fact that the deer that I hunt are low deer density numbers. Plus, they probably have the greatest hide and seek uh, area to hide from a human of anywhere in the North American continent, in my opinion. 
Um, and I've been a lot of places. And the reason I say that is because I have, you know, I've been a lot of places and I have hunted all over North America and Canada on purpose because I didn't want to be that guy that talked about whitetail hunting and had never actually been to the places that may he may compare to. So, man, I've hunted the Midwest. I've hunted the South. I've hunted Canada. I've hunted the Great Plains. I've hunted Montana. I've hunted North Dakota. Um, so I've been able to jump into a lot of habitats, so to speak. And then you back up and you look at my state. I live in I live in Idaho, but in northern Idaho. And I hunt what I call the triangle, which is northern Idaho, western Montana, eastern Washington. And it's all pretty much the same habitat. And the whole scrape idea of hunting scrapes was huge to me, even at a young age, because in Idaho, you could not bait deer and you never could. And I wanted to bow hunt deer on this giant scale of landmass, uh, mountainous forest, forested land. I literally hunt the forest. You know, you think about Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest. Well, I do literally go out into the forest and it's giant forest. And I had to figure out a way at a young age biologically to get the upper hand on the kind of deer that I wanted to kill. And I wanted to do it with a bow and arrow. So when I dove into this 30 plus years ago, there was nobody doing it. Nobody. Um, nobody in the Northwest with a bow and arrow. Nobody trying to kill big old whitetails with a bow and arrow during the early and late season archery seasons. And I just decided way back then that I was going to hunt whitetails. And I'm talking about my teens. I was going to hunt them with a bow and arrow. And I had to figure out a way biologically to get them in the daylight to be able to kill them. And I was going to do it not just during the early and late archery season. Our rifle season is any weapon season. So I said, screw it. I'm going to freaking do it through all the rifle seasons too. And that's what I did. And I didn't go in with just a wild hair up my ass saying I was going to make this happen. I knew biologically I had to break down a white-tailed deer and find a weakness. So for me, the whole scrapeology, the whole science of scrapes was huge to me even when I was young. And I literally read every biological base book on whitetails I could get my hands on back in the day. And this is, this is back in the 1980s um, when I'm reading these books when I'm in high school. And uh, I fell in love with whitetails. I mean, I was a nut. I was my zoology class in high school. I put together a whitetail deer bone for bone, every bone of its anatomy. You know, I was just really into whitetails and to the point where people didn't understand it or even get it. Um, so, yeah, I dove into the science behind scrapes. I let the mountains, even when I was young, when I was shed hunting and scouting and trying to figure out how to kill deer with a bow and arrow in the mountains, I let the scrapes teach me and I let the deer teach me what a scrape could really do for me in the daylight. So that's my background. There's literally so much more in-depth conversation we can have about scrapes. So I'm hoping you have some specific questions you want to ask. But just for your listeners, that's why I dove into scrapes. That's why I consider the way I hunt whitetails, I trap whitetails. Yesterday, I was out all day, put in a 15-hour day between driving and in the mountains, and I was checking my licking branches and scrapes and cameras that I leave out all winter to monitor and 
patterned deer and conditioned deer on my scrapes. I literally, that's what I was doing all day yesterday in the mountains. And I was, I think I was 17 miles in off of any highway where I was yesterday. And then between six and seven miles on my e-bike behind locked gates, checking some of my best scrape lines that I have and checking on bucks that I want to hunt next year. And it was a nice day. I Three of my big studs that I've been leaving alone and letting them get to six years old, uh, two of them for sure made it from what I can see. Well, that's awesome. Um, so real quick, can we break down, you know, from your scientific terms, like the anatomy of a scrape, like in, in what you're looking for, um, specifically, I, I guess maybe prior to when you were setting up your own. So the anatomy of a scrape, and I've talked about this at my boot camps, in my podcasts and articles, I think every hunter needs to get out and put a ton of miles on and let the mount the woods, wherever you're hunting, whatever kind of habitat you're in. This is what I do when I go out of state for anatomy of the scrape. I build scrapes in the Northwest like the big whitetails and the community of whitetails build scrapes. When I go to Oklahoma, I, I, I break it down and build them that way. So the anatomy of a scrape to me needs to be specific to a region. And then I mimic that. But there are some overlaying common variables that I always find. So if you want me to talk about those variables that I always see, would that be helpful? Yeah, certainly. Okay, so the number one thing that I look for in a scrape that triggers me and gets me excited about potential is the number one thing is going to be it needs to be positioned or located in a very advantageous area for whitetails to hit it in the daylight based on the local pressures. Herd dynamics, uh, I want a big whitetail that's mature to be comfortable at it. So one of the first things I look at is the location of the, we'll just say the area. And based on all the local pressures around it that are either going to uh, stimulate an old mature buck to want to see it in the daytime versus only visit it at night. And then when we strictly talk about the scrape itself, once I dive into those areas based on that security cover, based on that kind of hard to get to maybe, or a place that everybody goes right by, whatever it may be. Then I look at the licking branches. Number two, the licking branches tell you everything about the history and the evolution of a scrape that's there in the woods that's been placed by the deer. I look for detailed sign on the licking branches that shows me that yes i look at it and go okay this licking branch has been here a long time this local deer herd uses this scrape and has used this scrape for years maybe even decades and then then i look at the ground then i go down and look at the ground and like this time of the year there'll be uh western there'll be larch needles in it and there'll be pine needles in it and there'll be all kinds of debris in it because they're not pawing the ground. But then I really look at the dirt below it, even though it's been setting under four or five, six, seven feet of snow over the winter. Um, I look to see for size, 
if it's been pawed at for so many years that it's actually a little lower, meaning the, the dirt has been excavated out in a way to where you can see the depression in the ground, that tells me that that's not just a frenzy, testosterone-type-based young buck quick scrape that he threw together and never got attended by many deer. And so I'm looking for all of those telltale signs that I know what to look for based on just years of reading this sign and just woodsmanship in general when it comes to hunting whitetails. I've got to find those three things. Great location security cover. Detailed, beat up, almost to destroy to a point licking branches that you can tell have been worked and chewed on and hit with the antlers and broken down over the years and broke off and they, they just keep working on them. And they, I like to see that. And then I go to the dirt. And a lot of times with my larger community-based scrapes that is a hub where all the deer in the local general, say the drainage, will know where it's at, where they raise their young, where, they, where the does raise their fawns on it, where the bucks from literally up to miles away will come and check during the rut, not to mention the local bucks that bed near it, they all use it. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those his, that, all that historical data on the scrape, if that makes sense. Sure. And so from that bit of information, when you, are you only searching in those areas where you're going to find that? Or what happens if you're, when you're doing your scouting and you're, you're going through, and let's say, you know, I, I would have to imagine now you have a pretty good handle on your own area. So let's say you ventured out into a new area or you were going out of state and you come across one of these exactly as you uh, had outlined, except for it's not in a good daytime location. It doesn't have the security cover. Um, are you going to use that as an idea of, okay, so here's an area where a lot of deer come to are you going to find the nearest security cover and try and set up one of your own scrapes? Or are you just looking for all of that information? Because I think a lot of people, you know, sometimes will focus on, you'll find that community scrape, but it's always, you know, nocturnal activity except for, you know, a few days out of the year or, or, or something like that. So how do you approach an existing big community scrape like that and use it to your advantage? So if I find a a very significant, well laid out scrape that looks like it's been there a long time and it's it's not really in the cover that I'm looking for, the first thing I do if, if I'm out of state I, and if I'm on private land and if I'm in Iowa like I've been before, I mean, I'll just use Iowa as an example. I'll use Oklahoma as an example. I'm not quite as concerned about that high-end security cover as I am, say, in the mountains of public land where the whitetails get hunted two months out of the year with a rifle. They got wolves and lions and grizzlies living with them. So so all that to say to your listeners, to be fair, I'm going to immediately assess and break down my thoughts on that exact areas or states pressure. And then if I find something like that, and I'm glad you brought this up because 
I've literally found these in other states where I'm getting to hunt private land that doesn't have the kind of pressure that my deer see. I'll throw a camera on it and I'll overmark it. And I know the hunt's short. I've only got a week. But I'll throw a camera on it. I'll overmark it right away. And I'll check it within 48 hours, usually 24. And if it produces good daylight, because the deer still feel comfortable there in the daylight, and if I've got the quality of deer in the area that I want to hunt, then I, I might set up there. Because as long as the deer show me that they're comfortable with that in, in these other places, then I might. But to answer your question the other way, if I just think it's way too out in the open, let's say it's on a field edge. And even though some dudes get lucky and kill stuff on field edges in the open on, you know, where deer aren't, don't feel quite as pressured. I still would probably immediately break down the entire area on maps, look it over real close, walk it. And I would probably move in a direction based on all the sign towards the best heavy security bedding area cover. And I would probably set up in between, and I have done this, I would build a scrape that mimic that one that's in, that's in less, in my opinion, great security cover. I'd build something that looks like it, and I would make sure when I built it, I would place it specifically so the scent would travel into that great bedding cover. And I would probably elicit a lot more daylight frequency immediately within 48 hours. Sometimes 24, sometimes, I mean, sometimes I have bucks show up on these in six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours if I'm in the wheelhouse of a big deer. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that and something I want to get into uh, in a little bit because of the products you're using in the forehead gland, uh, you know, the forehead scent specifically. Um, but let's go back a little bit to, to setting up that scrape. So when you're setting up that scrape, Maybe not that one specifically. That was a really good explanation. But let's say that you didn't find that big community scrape and you're saying, okay, I, I'm i going to set up a, a mock scrape. For someone who's never done it before, I think guys will go in to an area and they say, well, I want to hunt here. So I know there's a deer trail over here. I'm just going to throw some uh doe pee on the ground and maybe I'll pee on the ground and I'll scrape up the the first layer and just get down to the dirt and then I'll put a camera over it and I think you know for being a Michigan guy until I started listening to podcasts and and finding out about you know kind of the way that you craft your um, mock scrapes and things that's kind of just the way that it's always been done or that's the the standard, uh, in this area, I would say. So when you're going to set up a new area to hunt, are you looking for terrain features or are you looking for certain areas? It sounds like, you know, on the downwind side or upwind side of bedding, cause you want that to go blow into there. How are you positioning these scrapes for the most success? Well, 100%. And when I'm dead and gone, I hope these podcasts stay alive because the only way it works, and I teach this in my boot camps, you have to start with the wind. You have to look at the wind in your mind, big picture wind thermals, 
and you've got to place these scrapes in great security cover, but you have to have the picture of in your mind of the wind in that whatever area you're in, how is that wind, you know, you got to think like a trapper. How is the wind in that area daily, the thermals, the prevailings, based on the terrain features, based on great cover, how is it going to push that scent to the nose of the bedded type of deer you want to kill? So, yeah, I got to be wind-specific, wind-driven placement, and I also have to know where I believe, based on my experience, my scouting, my boots on the ground, my e-scouting, where I believe the most mature and most intelligent whitetails, including old does and old bucks, would want to bed up for the day or days and days at a time. And they're not going to lay in their same bed every day out here. But there's zones, there's big areas that they that they camp out in and they, they make their home in to survive from predators. So all of that goes into play in my mind when I place one of these and the wind is the key. All those other things are super important. You got to be near beds. If you don't get near beds, you're out of the game in the daylight, except for a small window of time during the rut every year. Then deer will come for miles. Big bucks will. But to kill the bucks that I've killed in August, September, October, and December, you got to be near their beds. And you have to be able to infiltrate that area in and out not cross that wind, make that, I mean, that's where it's, that's where the high level stuff plays into or goes into play when you're trying to hunt scrapes. You got to have some type of terrain feature or some type of wind tunnel or wind channel that helps you with your wind to enter and exit, but you can put a scrape out beyond you, say 20, 30 yards, and it blows right up into that bedding area or down into it or whatever, whatever the de defined bedding area is. And and I'm not just playing guesswork on this. I mean, like like I said yesterday, I spent all day in the mountains or setting up old or reprogramming my old scrapes that just kill it every year. And then I put some new stuff in and in some new spots. And it was all based on wind first, then security cover. Terrain features are great, but they don't always have to be perfect. But you got to have wind that works for the scrape to the deer's nose they'll come to it they will check it and you got to be able to set up without ever compromising that and that's where it get that's where the all the next level being able to kill these old mountain bucks comes and where where it fails it's so easy to go out and put a scrape in and screw it up and just educate every deer in the world that you're there and you're hunting there and then they just skirt you Okay. Now, when you're doing that, like, is there a certain location? So is it, is it on benches? Is it on? No, no, it, there's never any, you know, everybody wants this magic answer. There's no magic answer. I've killed bucks on steep hillsides because that, you know, it's because where he was bedded, the only place I could hunt him was on a steep hillside and he would address it in the daylight. I've killed bucks on benches. I've killed bucks in saddles. Every buck's different. Every buck has his own defense mechanisms and his responses to different negative stimuli. So 
no, there is no exact, beautiful, perfect spot. Do I like certain benches? Sure. Have I been successful on them? Yes. Have some saddles been good to me in the past? Yes. Have some steep hillsides been great to me? Yes. I've pretty much been willing to hunt just about anything that's elevated. I just don't like being in bottoms. If okay. it helps your listeners, I, I don't like bottoms because the wind is just a pain in the ass. It's horrible. Okay. So I guess my question wasn't like, is this where you're killing these deer? But it, uh, maybe do deer tend to hit scrapes more frequently during the daylight on this area versus this area? Because I think no, for, no, for, deer, for a normal... Deer Different deer tend to hit scrapes based on where they feel secure. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, Log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. They'll hit them. They'll hit them in any terrain feature if it's the right scent in their face, and and they feel secure there, and they don't know you're there. Okay, so because I think in my mind, and for probably the passive listener, the 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 normal deer hunter, I guess. Like on a steep hillside, I wouldn't think that that would be a scraping area or that that would be there. But I guess from the trapping side of it, you're saying that none of that matters if that's the only place I can put it. And I'm going to show him that basically these deer have moved in that you didn't see. He's going to go check it out. So you take a steep hillside. In big country, even in your guys' country, take a steep hillside. I've seen it in Iowa, in the rolling hills. I've seen it in Ohio. You take a steep hillside where nobody wants to hunt, nobody wants to travel. It's great, great cover. On top of the ridge, there's a road or a trail. On the bottom of the hollow, there's a road going down through it. You got these steep hillsides. They're one of the best places to intercept big whitetails. Why? Because big whitetails use them to travel. They use them to travel because, one, they have great cover. Two, they can use the thermals and they can get down off the top of ridges and they can be on that top third or middle half and they can slide through that using a daily thermal that's coming up and a prevailing quartering to their face or whatever. Sometimes those steep hillsides are incredible for scrapes. Um, I was in Ohio a couple of years ago and the biggest, most incredible community scrape I saw on this whole property I was hunting was on a steep hillside for travel and it was steep and it wasn't pretty and it wasn't a beautiful place to hunt, but the deer knew that they could travel through there in the daylight without getting hunted. So it, I mean, to be brutally honest, it it all boils down to the area you're hunting and where all the pressure is and where you can find deer comfortable traveling in the daylight. And it's got to lead to and from bedding and, where they want to be, whether it's a feeding time of the year or if they're checking on does during the rut. So in all of your time uh, doing these workshops, talking to other hunters, doing podcasts, and then 
I'm sure inevitably you're coming across other people or their setups in the woods. When it comes to scrapes, mock scrapes, scrape drippers, all of that stuff that we would typically say you'd run across, what are the most common mistakes that you're seeing guys make? That's a great question. Number one mistake is guys are sloppy. Humans are sloppy. They don't want to admit it to themselves, but they get their human scent all over everything. It's kind of like a crime scene. Humans make mistakes like crazy with their fingers, their hands, their sweat, their scent. Um, so I, number one to me, it boils down to discipline and you got to be a, um, you got to be meticulous in my opinion, if you want to be in the game and near a big bucks betting area and not tip him off. So I would say human sense, number one. Uh, I personally would never use a protein-based real scent that's in a bottle because the bacteria breaks it down, it rots, it smells like an outhouse. The only scents that I use are synthetics and or frozen dissected scent out of a buck or doe that's local say I got it or get the bladder from somebody else, or I will move existing like right now peed in dirt that's fresh in November, October, November, where it's really getting worked. I'll move the dirt and Ziplocs without getting my human scent on it. Or I will, I will extract a, a licking branch from one scrape that's been there forever, especially if it has multiple licking branches with a lot of deer scent on it, and I'll move it to a different location. So those are some of the games I play. The reason I like the synthetic is it never rots or breaks down bacterially. Um, and I've never had any negative responses from it. And I run multiple cameras and video on it. So I see the proof year after year after year of the deer just hammering it. Uh, I went through 24,000 pictures yesterday and probably 500 videos and my synthetic setups over marking existing and building my own mocks. I mean, daylight, night, doesn't matter when they're in the right location, when you keep your human odor out of it um, and don't buy into all of these uh, trends or magic pixie dust type BS and really just keep it simple and pure and clean. Your scrapes are going to do the best. Okay. When you talk about the meticulousness of of human scent, um, and I've heard you talk about it on uh, other podcasts, um, as far as like what you do at this time of year versus in the rut or you know later in the season, as you know, getting closer, I guess to to hunting season. Um, but when you're setting up your scrapes, what kind of scent control procedures are you doing, and then? How, how are you using, are you using any scent control products, scent lock, any of that stuff during the season? That's a great question. And I've evolved over the years and really paid close attention and been honest with myself with what my cameras show me after I leave a site. Um, since the 1990s, I've used Vanishing Hunter. So this time of year, it's May. I won't be trying to kill a buck till August 30th. I went in yesterday. I'll just use yesterday as an example. Rode my e-bike in several miles. Got off it. It was raining. I like the rain. I like to pull cameras when it's raining. Um, but I also knew the rain was going to slow down in the afternoon. It was going to dry up for the next few days. 
So I timed all that. I mean, I literally live by the weather. My whole life is, revolves. My wife thinks I'm insane about watching weather forecasts because everything I try to time, even with my scrapes and trapping these deer, is based on the weather. So I got in, had really clean, fresh forest, just unbelievably clean. The ozone in the air was strong. I mean, it was just beautiful out there all day. And it was wet, but it was drying. So I got in, uh, I had sprayed down all of my clothes and my boots and my hands with the Vanishing Hunter, like I always do. And I, I'm i a simple guy, meaning I keep things simple. I don't want to pack garden tools two, three, four miles in on my e-bike. So I just use a long, I find a big, long branch that's broken off, laying in the woods. And I went to probably one of the best community scrapes that I've ever found that I've hunted over for years now. And it produces big bucks every year, always produces a, a shooter. Um, and I just used a long red fir branch to scrape it all out, paw it all out just for visual and to get the fresh earth scent back in the noses of the deer. And then I use the spray bottles that I like that spray a long ways away. So I stand back a little bit and and I spray from a distance and load them up with urine. And then I use the same method on the licking branches. I don't touch them. And I stand back and keep my hands off of them, obviously. And I load the licking branches up this time of year with the uh, forehead gland, the preorbital, and I've got some other whitetail synthetic products in my mixes that I doubt anybody else has. But anyway, I put all that on and I have a time limit. I always, when I, when I work my scrapes, it's five minutes and out. I'm not leaving a ton of residual scent. My pack, I hung it from my tree stem step uh, or I'll put a screw in step or I'll find a branch that's broke off of a tree, whatever. I do different things, but I hang my pack up off the ground. I don't throw it on the dirt. Uh, just little things like that. Uh, I really, you know, I check my cameras quick. If I need to change batteries or swap cameras out, I do. Sometimes I have bear problems. Sometimes a camera isn't working right. I make sure they're working. I get them rolling. Boom, I'm out of there. And it's usually five to 10 minutes max. And I'm gone. And then I just let my cameras do the work. And that's what I did yesterday at several sites. When I'm building a new spot, Oh, I blow it up and I load it up. I want it to be so impressive to the deer scent-wise, visually, that they cannot deny checking it. And the key to that is, again, keeping my human odor out of those setups. So when I build a new one, a lot of times I'll wear latex gloves, unless it's really hot out. I don't want my hands sweating like a pig. And I always for sure spray down with the Vanishing Hunter. And I've just had such great luck with Vanishing Hunter that I won't go away from it. It's worked for me forever. I mean, for decades. So that's what I do. Nothing extravagant, but very disciplined in my movements and how I build them. And when you're hunting, like, so during the season, are you're just strictly playing the wind then, or are you using anything for scent at that point? Vanishing Hunter always, I don't, you know, I tested every, I've tested every, I've tested scent lock. I've tested it all. And I'm not saying it doesn't help a little, but my, my stands need to be set up at a wind that is, um, 
they need to be set up in a way where the wind is going to produce for me. I try to make sure my spots are at least 75% windproof. So, on, you know, you can't get them 100% based on where you put your scrape. But I always try to shoot for 75% or close. And then I always shoot for that wind that I rarely get combined with the with the thermals. I uh, I really work hard to dial that in to where I could probably hunt that stand 60 to 75, maybe 80% of the time, if that makes sense. Sure. So, so those setups are well thought out. And it's the reason why I can go back and hunt these scrapes year after year. And I don't have to fall into that after you hunt it the first time or second times, it's no good. So I don't, I don't play that game. And I'm probably one of the only guys around that can, that really, I don't want to play that game where I got to move all the time. Now, will I move on a big deer if I got to move closer to his bed, especially on an out of state hunt? Heck yeah. But when I'm hunting scrapes that work for me year round, I want to be able to hunt them from August 30th till December 24th, if that makes sense. Sure. And so as you're setting up, obviously you're setting up for your access, for your ability to hunt the wind along with the deer feeling secure and comfortable and not knowing you're there. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you're setting up for like the deer's approach? Um, Do you have these dialed in so that you know exactly where the beds are and exactly how the deer is going to approach? Or are you setting up based on, you know, they normally will scent check it from this way, or are you trying to shoot, shoot them on the licking branch at the, you know, at the scrape site? It's a good question. And that's the hardest one to break down and to, to talk about, I think, but I'll do my best to break it down. I'm, I'm setting up if it's a new area, like yesterday, I went into a couple of new spots. It's all based on how I see the wind work in there on maps, how it felt when I got there, where I needed that scrape to be to be the most productive to get sent out towards great bedding and great travel. And then I tried to pick, or I always try to pick, the least obtrusive entrance and exit to a tree that I can make sure and shoot the scrape. Now, another thing I do is when I'm setting up, there's some spots where there's some places where if a deer comes in, say he jay hooks in or gets a downwind thermal, where I make sure I can kill them in an opening before they get to where my scent would be. I hope that makes sense. Where I can shoot them before they cross me. Um, And I've hunted some stands where I knew I was risking a lot more on certain days than others based on the the mix with the thermals and the prevailings. But I make sure that I have those lanes open to kill at those sites instead of just having one or two options only. I do always make sure I can shoot the scrape. People have different opinions on that. Um, Some people like to set up off the scrape or on the downwind side of where they'll hook in under it. And that's, that's great. But you know, I've, I heard Andre say at one time too, he said, you start doing that. And the next thing you know, you got a giant stand in your scrape and you can't shoot it. And I've always been that train of thought too. I'm going to build this to trap them and get them to it. And they feel comfortable there in the daylight. I need to be able to shoot it or shoot that deer approaching it either side of it or downhill from me. 
Um, I rarely expect them to come in the exact same way I came in, if that makes sense. And I'm telling you, that's hard to explain where I come up with this in my mind and how I map it all out because it's been decades and decades of laying these spots out, learning from mistakes, having the deer show me my entrance and exit sucked, and I've had to change and move on them. And that's what I'll do when I screw it up when the deer show me something different. But I also go into an area and I'm very cognizant of exactly, in my opinion, when I like that new area I went in yesterday, I really paid attention to where I could see the faint trails leading to this specific topographical spot I wanted to get into. Then I, and it was, I made me happy because I could see that I could come in on a basically a horizontal or lateral line from a, from a direction I needed to. And I could basically kind of side hill into this where I didn't expect a whole lot of deer want to walk because there was so many blowdowns and it was nice because I got in there and I popped up onto this, this kind of a yeah, faint little bench saddle combo um, that had a clear cut above it. And it just turned it. it I think it'll be great because of the way it funnels the deer in the thick cover. But anyway, all that to say, yes, it's, you know, it's, it's just so it's, there's just so much mapping out of, of the plan to get in and out. If your entrance and exit is wrong, you get a one day, two day hunt and you're done. Okay. Now on that note, like in your, you're talking about all these different spots that you set up yesterday and that's probably, you know, not even a fraction of what you do and you keep tabs on. Are they all kill spots like this or do you have some that are set up just for inventory purposes and looking for that next up and comer, that next spot? The majority of everything I have is I don't, I don't have time to not be able to kill. Uh, my life is extremely busy. My boy's a college football player. I don't have a lot of days. I work like crazy. So the majority of my spots are I better be able to kill there. It's a waste of my time. Now, to, 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 to go back on that a little bit, I do set out prospecting spots too initially this time of year. But I'll pull them if it doesn't produce what I need to see, uh, let's say, by, by August. Now, what I need to see compared to what most people need to see is two different things. If I got doe family groups that will address my scrapes in the daylight and even some young bucks that have great potential, I'll never pull a spot like that because I know I can condition deer one, two, three, four years down the road and end up with a big one there. So I'm very patient that way with spots. And some of those spots have turned into my greatest spots because the does train their young to like it. The young bucks learn to like it when they settle into an area when they're two and a half and they got great potential. And, you know, a buck I killed a few years back, it was a perfect example of that. I let a scrape run and never hunted it for four years until he got to six and then I killed him. And it didn't really have anything on it till he was five and six. So the previous three years of that scrape conditioning, training the deer in the mountains to use it was nothing, but it was just, I just kept running it. I was at a spot yesterday 
that I have ran now for three years. And now I have two big six-year-old shooters on it next year. If they made the winter, they made it through hunting season. And I left them alone at five years old, which my son's home from, he gets a month off from college football. It's all he gets. Actually, he gets 17 days. And he he goes, Dad, you should have hunted him this year. He's five and he's big. And I said, well, I had that older deer to hunt. And I really want to see what he turns into at six. So there are times where I'll leave. I'm just very, very patient, if that makes sense. And I like to condition deer to a spot where they just feel safe for years and years and years while I'm hunting at different locations and hunting a target buck that's at the age that I want. Okay. Now, when you talk about conditioning these deer and setting these uh, scrapes and, and pulling them or, or not pulling them, um, how often are you like refreshing these scrapes throughout the year? My rule is never more than once a month. And a lot of times my product works so good that the deer take it over immediately that are local. And then I just let them take it over. And then I never refresh it unless I'm checking a camera in the summer. Um, or if I'm hunting the location. So for example, some of these spots that I haven't hunted at all, I only refresh right now and check again later in the summer to see if I have a potential shooter I want to kill there if he's living in the area. And like say that five-year-old that I left, I've had really, I've got a five-year-old that I've left alone. That's awesome. Um, he'll be six this year. He's a great example of this. I didn't go in and refresh it at all after last, um, I checked it. The last time I checked it, I, I checked it in the summer and then left it till October, checked it once in October refreshed it then did not hunt it just went back to it yesterday so three times in a year and the deer have just taken it over to the point where when i refresh now it's going to be more frequent because i want to hunt there if he's if he shows up alive uh, i can't tell right now if he's alive because we don't have much growth um but my point is when it's game time and i want to kill the deer then yes i refresh when i'm at the hunt site. If I'm going to be there and hunt the deer, I walk out. When I leave, I refresh. Um, sometimes if it's, it, I refresh early in the morning if I'm going to sit all day because I want the scent blowing for the whole day. If it's an afternoon hunt, I usually really, I usually refresh when I leave, if that makes sense. Cause I, cause I'm not as worried about the scent for a partial day hunt as I am for that, that whole day. But that's not always the case too. I just go by feel when I get in there. And if I feel like, man, I can get over to that scrape and the wind's working perfect for me, even to walk to the scrape and touch it up, I will. But if I get in there and I don't like what the wind's doing out at the scrape, meaning me walk to it, but I feel safe back at my stand and I won't. And I hope that's clear. Sure. But I don't refresh a lot uh, because my product works so good. My deer take it over. And this is what the listeners need to understand. The deer, the deer take these over. So the scent's there for you because the deer are laying it down. Now let's bounce to like last year, the big buck that I ended up missing in late season. I would refresh on him, and he was so dominant to that spot, and that scrape is his. He would be there within 12 to 24 hours every time I refreshed 
So he was, he and I were living close to each other. I was hunting very close to where he lived and he was really on top of that scrape. That sounds like a lot of fun, a lot of stress, but sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it is, it is the, it's what I, it is it, honest to God. It's unbelievable. I mean, I was ex athlete, college football player, done it all. Nothing is like this. There's nothing that compares to going mono a mono with a big old mountain buck that you're in his wheelhouse and he doesn't know you're hunting him. Cause if he knows you're hunting him, he checks out. He will not come in in the daylight and he'll move or do whatever he's got to do. Just like he does with a mountain lion or a wolf. He will, he will check out on you in the daylight. So let's talk a little bit about the, the product for a second. Um, just because, like I said, I, I outlined before what, what I think most guys would do for setting up a mock scrape, right? So you've got the, I don't know, I would say the late nineties, 2000 eras, straight scrape drippers that drip, you know, that I grew up, my dad was using. And then you got the guys that just go out and paw up the earth, dump some dopey in there. And, um, when I was talking about that forehead, uh, stuff, my brother was using that a couple of years ago and the same exact thing that you're, you're saying. And it wasn't, you know, I, I hadn't heard of like your process or anything like that. You know, he would just get the buck fever synthetic forehead gland, go out, spray it on a, a tree branch, you know, in an area he was doing in an area where deer moved through and they would be on it within six or seven hours. Like you'd set the camera, be out there. And then they were there immediately. Um, what is it about the, and one of the questions from one of the listeners, when we talked about doing this podcast was, that licking branch how important is the licking branch and then you know what is in it why is it such a such a draw that they would be there that quickly well the licking branch is the most important it's year around it's year around social data for the deer if you look at the if you look up the biology of a whitetail and you look up his forehead gland and you look up preorbital and even his saliva, deer can walk up to a licking branch, scent check it. They can process without them knowing it, but they process how well and how healthy the other deer that are leaving data there are. They process how well the other deer metabolize protein. So, when a and a good example is this, I went through a bunch of videos last night on a scrape that I left all season and did not hunt. I had a doe that started getting ready to come in on my. She's a local doe to doe to my scrape. As soon as she started depositing more scent on the licking branch, urinating in the scrape, getting ready, she started bedding in the scrape. They'll literally bed in it when they're ready or right next to it. That's when the big dudes on my camera showed up, and that's when they started literally in snow tearing the scrape up. I get to watch all this stuff because I run video cameras. The data I have is I'll just I think it's better than what most biologists know because I spend way more time studying it, and I have way more cameras out on deer, and I video everything. But anyway, that scent that's deposited back on those licking branches is not only just for during 
And this is a huge misconception in the world of whitetails that scraping is only good during October, November. That's total BS. You can kill a whitetail deer of your liking on a licking branch from August to January, February, doesn't matter. And it's because the social biology of a whitetail dictates that. It's not because it's magic scent. It's because they are programmed to check licking branches for not only who's around, but for the health of the herd. And so from that, I've heard you talk about it before and it isn't when you're doing this, when you're like you had mentioned, when you're setting up your sites, you're blowing it up. And you've talked about crafting that licking branch so that when you're setting up a new one, that it looks real, that it looks like the deer have been hitting it. Is there a visual component to that too, other than just strictly the the scent side of it? Dude, thank you. You're one of the first guys that's ever brought that up, 100%. Whitetails will walk in on a camera on my videos when I make a brand new mock. And they'll literally just stare that thing down like they would a camera if they don't like a camera, that licking branch. And they'll stare that dirt down. I mean, they're living in this stuff 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. They lock into the fresh dirt that's pod, even if there's not urine in it. And they put their eyes right on that licking branch and they walk right to it. Now, that's ingrained in their DNA. and conditioned to them from when they're young. The mother does that all my scrapes that I build or that I overmark teach the young to, and my, my youngsters, all my fawns just hammer my licking branches and they do it way more than the older deer. The older deer are more specific about when they want to and when they do it. Um, but they teach the young and then the older deer, a lot of times will just walk right through the scrape. And when they want to, they'll lay down and deposit what they need to deposit. Uh, I see it, though, year-round on my cameras when they are able to be at the scrapes. And the reason I bring that up is I get so much snow out here that my deer in a lot of places, not everywhere, but due to elevation, a lot of times my deer leave from – they have to leave in January and they come back in March. So for a guy setting up a new scrape site or like me, I've got some of your, your, your stuff and I'm getting ready to head out uh, this next weekend and, and kind of craft some things and do kind of my own, you know, testing, I guess, if you will. And I guess that's just as much testing my ability to put it in the right spot as it is seeing how it works. Um, some tips on making something that the deer won't, run away from well number one if you're human sense on it they'll run away from it if if they don't like human scent if i don't know how tame or wild your deer are deer are different in every region mm-hmm. um so number one is human scent keep your dang hands off of it you know don't put bare hands on it uh you know i'll spray down with vanishing hunter and then if i have i i have and i will I'll manipulate a licking branch with that on my hands because I know how it's worked for me. But I like to use, especially when I build, I like to use, just like when I bear bait, I like to use rubber gloves. It's that simple. 
And I like to spray down the rubber gloves on top of it or latex gloves. I'll do two or three pair of latex on so I don't rip through them. Because when you're building licking branches, you tear up those latex gloves. So I'll do that too. But anyway, keep human scent out of it. And then based on your knowledge of what the best scrapes in your area look like that actually do produce daylight, I would construct your licking branches, twist them, turn them, get them hanging vertically, you know, vertically, make them look like what the deer are used to seeing in your area at a scrape that they like to check and that they've been conditioned to check over their lifetime. And then no matter what time of the year it is, go ahead and uh, tear the dirt up, get that fresh dirt smell out there and add some urine to it, especially if you're building a new one, because you're trying to create a scrape that they didn't know was there. But when they get to it, they're like, how in the hell did I miss this? This is important. And I didn't know it was here. Then they'll come back. And so from that perspective, are you, you know, I think the stereotypical sizing of a community scrape is, you know, you always hear like the car hood size scrape. Um, it doesn't need to be that big. I'm a three, I always make mine at least three feet in a teardrop shape. That way it's visible, you know, because you brought up a really good point. Visual is important to whitetails. They're very visual. Obviously, scent's probably number one. And then auditory and visual is number two, tied. So I like to make sure if a buck's cruising through right now, growing antler and just hanging out, doing his thing in the summer or spring and summer, I want him to see it. Um, one thing that I have done for decades is I make mock rubs because a whitetail buck and doe, but a buck really will notice a rub further away than a scrape sometimes. So I'll make a couple mock rubs that are very visual around the scrape. So let's say a buck's walking by at say 50 yards. He can look through the trees and see that big rub over there. And then if he chooses to, he might go over, then he gets into the scent trail of that or the scent cone of that scrape and boom he'll walk right to it even this time of year and i'm talking about the licking branch scent and the ground scent both but yeah the whole visual aspect is kind of like artwork in my opinion give them something that's very attractive to them biologically okay now there are other guys out there that say okay you need you know uh jute rope or something they want it waist high so all the little deer can get to it too do you have a height on your licking branches preferably height's fine height is fine if you go i always go chest height i'm 510 all my fawns will get up on their hind legs if they have to to address it they all do uh and chest height at 510 is a piece of cake for any deer okay um rope and all that stuff in my opinion sure go ahead and use it if you want to fine you don't need it I'm all about 100% keep it natural to the deer and pick a species in your area that the deer prefer the most based on your intel, your scouting. You should know that if you're if you want to build scrapes, then go out and let the deer tell you what they prefer by doing a bunch of scouting, shed hunting, walking the ground, really pay close attention to the species of tree or brush or or whatever they're using that they really like in the area and that's what i go with 
Okay. Um, that's kind of all the things that I've got. I got one other question for you, I guess, just because you probably have more data and information usage than anybody. You know, I always joke around where there's kind of two sets of guys out there, especially guys that are new and maybe haven't been using trail cameras or anything like that, um, that are either like the guys that like yourself that are using them for data. So you're, you're breaking down that information or there's what I would call like the trail camera enthusiast that gets all these pictures of all of these bucks and they're at night or they're, you know, at some point during the day, but they're not using that information. It's like, they just like to get pictures of deer rather than utilize it. So is there a way with that much data that you're collecting um, that you're using it and able to sift through and sort it reasonably, maybe uh, something that would help a guy out that has, you know, some pictures of deer he wants to kill or something like that and doesn't know how to organize or use and implement that information. So my system? Yeah. My, or, data, my data collection system, the way I'd go about it? Yeah, or just maybe specifically, like, what are some things that, have helped you along the way. Like once I started doing this, I was able to make it easier for myself. I, I think with as much data as I bring in for me, I try to streamline it. So I have a file just on my computer and tell me if I'm going down the wrong road here. No, you're good. But I have a, I have a file on every location and every individual buck. So when I go through literally, what did I, 24,000 pictures last night. And that's just the pictures. That's not the videos. I literally just zip through them in wind. When I get a buck that gets to three and a half, four and a half, that looks like a contender, like could be a stud. I start throwing him into a file. I name him. All of his video I throw into a file. All my video runs with Windicators. So I can really watch, even as he gets older, how he approaches an area. And how he changes his behavior. I throw it all into a file, if that makes sense. And then I can go back and revisit that file and really break down that file when I have time, when I get serious about a specific deer. And so over the time, like, let's say that five-year-old deer that you had on camera last year that your son says you should have hunted. Um now let's say that you're going to focus on that deer this year. What is it as you go back through your file that you're looking for? Are you looking for dates, wind direction, uh, times? I mean, obviously, yeah, the answer is yes, but is there one of those things or is there some bit of information that like tells you, okay, I know I can kill him on this day because X. Yeah. I start looking for reoccurring, uh, tendencies. And when he gets older, they change their tendencies because they get a lot more, they get a lot more careful because they're, my deer are being hunted by other dudes. Um, so I'm really looking for reoccurring daylight tendencies based on the wind, the conditions and the time of the year and how he is monitoring his area, his, that scrape and the local doe family groups. Good example of that guy I was telling you about the five-year-old. He's moved on me twice since he was two and a half. He's literally moved on me and I've moved with him and found him again and found him again. 
my hope and prayer is this year, he, he's been at this place now for partially half of a year, the year before, and then all the last year. I'm hoping he's settled in here. Um, if he settles in and he shows up this summer and he's in there early fall, he's in trouble because he's settled in to a big mountainous area, which is not always easy with predators. They, they do get deer move. They like, he moved a couple miles on me and I had to refind him. So yes, the, the, the dates, the tendencies, the daylight, I can tell that he likes this bedding area. That's why I believe he's there now. He found a very conducive, great buck bedding area. And four years ago, if we backtrack, I went in and put the scrape in there and set all this up and and said, this will be one day a great place to kill a whitetail, whether it's right now or down the road, because the bedding area, the security and the way the wind works in this drainage is perfect for it. That's why I set up there. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I think between the trail cameras and the mock scrapes i think that those are some of the things that people talk a lot about and people use maybe not as effectively as they should and i think this is all super helpful so i really appreciate you coming on and and really breaking it down for us um today where can people follow along with uh, like i know you've got a bunch of youtube videos kind of outlining a lot of this stuff um or or contact you if if they have specific questions i mean just to be fair the stuff that i get a post because i'm a public land hunter is usually pretty safe so to speak Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so just to be fair i've got some great content that teaches you that shows a lot of those deer either dead or on my wall um but to get a hold of me my instagram's the easiest and that's MTN underscore man 33, Mountain Man 33. That's where most guys just message me like you you did me. You got a hold of me there. Um, yeah, so my Instagram. And then I have a YouTube page that I don't make a big deal about. But when guys want to go see mature mountain whitetails, just addressing scrapes, I post videos there. I do a little bit of instruction there, but not a lot because I have a boot camp. And guys come to my boot camp for a reason because they want that one-on-one out in the field uh, education, and I and I value that. So, yeah, I there's some stuff to me that's very coveted, and the guys that come to my boot camp, I I break it all down for them 100. percent And then I I feel like I am very giving when it comes to podcasts too on info. So I hope that helps people. Sure, and if people have information, one information about you know, the products that you're using or to reach out about the boot camp, um, just through Instagram is the best way. Yep. I just stick with Instagram cause it's easy and everybody it's centralized for me. I don't have to check five different entities to talk to people. So yeah, people can message me, uh, follow my page on Instagram. And then as far as products go, I've always been a buck fever synthetics guy, but I also have created and and tested and really come up with my own community type mix that is specific to me that I will never ever give out the full dates details on it because it's a it's my deal it's my thing that I've worked for years on to perfect and I really like it um, but yeah it's all buck fever synthetic based it's great stuff awesome well I really appreciate your time Troy and uh, I hope you have a good rest of your day Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. That was, it's always good to talk whitetails.
Yeah, I, I would 100% agree. Thanks. Places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.